0: The next faculty member I asked to report on the goings-on at the ASCO GI meeting was Dr. Axel Grothy, who began our conversation by commenting on another set of oral presentations on colorectal cancer, a series of reviews of multidisciplinary management issues. To begin, Dr. Grothy comments on a presentation by Dr. Renee Adam on downstaging of liver metastases with the goal of cure.
1: René Adam, first of all, is one of the pivotal proponents of the idea of curative approach for stage 4 colorectal cancer. I mean, he's a surgeon in Paris and comes out of a kind of a school of surgeons that have talked about curative approach for stage 4 disease sometime earlier in conjunction with chemotherapy earlier than we did it here in the United States or in other parts of Europe. And this group more or less developed this idea of using an oxaloplatin-based chemotherapy as a new adjuvant treatment downsizing liver metastases that might not be perfectly resectable initially, and then following this up with additional chemotherapy. And I think in his presentation, René Adam made a very nice distinction between three different groups of patients that he sees with liver metastases. One of the group is the easily resectable group of patients, meaning patients that present with metastases that are resectable up front. And this is the question whether or not we would need Neoadjuvant chemotherapy in this group at all or not. The idea of using neoadjuvant chemotherapy in this group is not based on making them better resectable because they're already resectable, but more getting biologic information on the tumor, meaning. the response to therapy actually indicates a better prognosis down the road. We'll know much better what we'll do after the surgery because we know a tumor might have responded or not responded to therapy. So I think this is more like a prognostic indicator that we'll get in those patients with easily resectable metastasis. Then the second group he identified was this marginally resectable group of patients, meaning a tumor where you might think you can do surgery, but it would be better to shrink the tumor, and this can be done by adjuvant treatment, such as Folfox-based chemotherapy. In these group of patients, it's clear the better the response rate of a regimen that we use, the higher the resectability is going to be. And then the third group of patients he outlined was the definitely unresectable group of patients. And he put a little question mark behind it, which I thought was interesting because sometimes we are surprised. Definitely unresectable could mean, for instance, extra hepatic disease, multiple scattered liver metastasis. And yes, while it's still unlikely that those patients will ever be able to undergo resection with curative intent we could actually say sometimes chemotherapy works very well and we will be able to get a tumor-free state for some time so we can integrate surgery into our clinical kind of strategy. But for most purposes, those patients will be those classical palliative patients where surgery does not play a role.
0: Anything else that he discussed as part of that that you want to comment on?
1: I mean, he did discuss, and we will have to face that more and more, the injuries we actually administer to patients' livers when we conduct neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And most recently, I think we have a better understanding based on large series from the United States, from Europe, on the differences in toxicities and injuries we afflict to a liver with different drugs, like 5-FU, take and oxalplan For instance, steatohepatitis, which is associated with a higher, let's say, postoperative morbidity or mortality, is mainly not exclusively, but mainly due to reno exposure, this veno-occlusive disease or like sinusoidal dilatation vascular injury to the liver is mainly related to oxalplatin, which then causes this blue liver and splenomegaly and portal hypertension even in some cases. So we have differences in toxicities that we observe, and that's one of the reasons why we try to limit the duration of our neoadjuvant therapy to as short as possible, as short as needed, because he made this nice comment, the worst case scenario for a surgeon is a complete response on imaging, because he wouldn't know where to do surgery, because we know even when we see a complete response on an even MRI or PET scan or CT scan, you name it, histologically in 95% of patients will still see a residual vital tumor. So he coined this phrase, the medical oncologist's dream is an surgeon's nightmare, meaning we all want to be as active as possible. But in the end, a complete response on imaging scans does not mean a patient is cured. In my personal opinion, is why we do like to believe this way. I think a medical oncologist needs the help of a liver surgeon in order to be able to cure patients.
0: So in your own personal practice, when your patients go to surgery, if they've had an imaging complete response in a certain area, does the surgeon still resect that area?
1: If they can identify it, yes. I mean, upon surgery, everyone will perform an intraoperative ultrasound, which is still able to pick up more and better and with higher resolution Intrahepatic lesions that we might consider gone on CT and, and MRI scans. So, this is one of the things where intraoperative ultrasound is helpful. And I've had several cases where the liver surgeon cannot identify the area even where the tumor was. So, instead of just sacrificing more liver, you can also say, you know, why don't we just wait and see and monitor this patient? We can go in again and re resect. So the concept of not just one surgery, but repeated surgeries to eventually obtain a tumor-free state can actually be very, very helpful.
0: What was your thoughts on presentation number one, Kesmodal? Can you provide a background to what that was looking at and what they saw?
1: We know that in some patients with stage four disease, is four metastatic colorectal cancer, we can actually follow a curative approach by integrating surgery in our treatment strategy. And a lot of patients right now with liver limited disease, for instance, get treated with chemotherapy, bevacizumab-containing chemotherapy up front, and at some point in their treatment, they will face the decision whether or not they'll be able to go on for surgery. And since bevacizumab, as you all know, is associated with wound healing problems, the timing of surgery is critical in regards to bevacizumab. Our current guidelines suggest that we should hold bevacizumab for six weeks before we plan elective surgeries such as liver surgery. And this study, this retrospective analysis from MD Anderson, looked at the consequences of bevacizumab-based neoadjuvant chemotherapy in patients that will undergo subsequent liver resection. So they looked at their patient collective that underwent liver surgery for colorectal cancer metastasis from the time when bevacizumab was approved in 2004, and then divided this group of patients that they found a total of about 127 patients in group 1 patients who did have bevacizumab and group 2, 45 patients who did not have bevacizumab. And they looked at postoperative and intraoperative complications, hepatobiliary injuries, wound healing complications, etc., dependent on whether or not patients had bevacizumab preoperatively and the interval of bevacizumab prior to surgery, meaning how long bevacizumab was discontinued. And interestingly, first of all, and reassuringly, whether or not bevacizumab was used preoperatively did not change anything in terms of morbidity or mortality of liver surgery. And even whether or not bevacizumab was discontinued more or less than 60 days before surgery did not change the overall outcome or complications. The problem that I see here is, yes, we would all agree that we should discontinue bevacizumab about six weeks before surgery. This study does not give us any idea whether we can actually continue bevacizumab until yeah, kind of a shorter time to surgery, meaning less than 42 days of a treatment-free interval between bevacizumab and surgery. I think it's quite well established that no complications, no injuries, no wound healing problems happen upon liver surgery when bevacizumab is discontinued six weeks prior to surgery.
0: What about the issue of bevacizumab after surgery? Did they look at that at all in terms of hepatic regeneration?
1: They didn't look at that. In this study, we know that we should not start bevacizumab within the first four weeks after elective surgery. This is based on the settings and the entry criteria of the pivotal Hurwitz trial. On the other hand, there are some preclinical studies that have not been published yet that show that VEGF inhibition like bevacizumab does not interfere with liver regeneration. So it's safe to use bevacizumab.
0: Now, you were co-author on an often cited JCO editorial about this same topic. Can you talk a little bit about what you all said in that paper and how that compares to what was presented here?
1: I mean, the paper was actually sparked by first, as mentioned before, the very frequent use of bevacizumab as part of first-line therapy, which eventually could lead to near advent adjuvant setting when patients will go on to liver surgery. So we have the problem of patients going to liver surgery on Bevacizumab or after Bevacizumab-based therapy. Bevacizumab now is a VEGF inhibitor, a monoclonal antibody against the ligand VEGF, and has a long half-life of about three weeks. And we normally assume that the biologic efficacy of a drug is related to about two times its natural half-life. So we think that about six weeks after bevacizumab gets discontinued in the effects of VEGF inhibition will be waned off. The reason for this editorial was to kind of provide guidelines for clinical practice in order to make sure that patients get appropriate time interval between last dose of bevacizumab and liver surgery, elective surgery for liver metastasis, and not run into the problems of having surgery on bevacizumab therapy, which is associated with higher risk of wound healing complications.
0: What data do we have actually on that situation of emergent surgery bevacizumab on board? You mean
1: while patients are on bevacizumab? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, the data we have on bevacizumab and surgery, meaning surgery while bevacizumab treatment is being conducted, relates back to the Herberts trial again, and the rate of wound healing complications for patients that underwent surgery, for instance for intestinal problem, bowel obstruction, GI perforation, etc., was about in the range of 28% compared to 12% for patients that did not have bevacizumab in their treatment. So it's not like every patient will have wound healing, severe wound healing complications when he has surgery on bevacizumab, but the rate is clearly higher. So if you have an avoidable risk, like an elective surgery, you rather make sure that you discontinue bevacizumab early enough.
0: I was particularly interested in your thoughts about the next presentation on a topic near and dear to your heart by Emery de Gramont, on chemotherapy-free intervals.
1: Yeah, that is a topic which is really dear to my heart. And it relates back to an observation I've made for many years, actually, since oxyplatin came around, that as soon as we adopt oxalplatin as one of our standards of care in first-line therapy, more patients will eventually discontinue therapy for reasons other than progressive disease. I mean, they run inevitably at some point in toxicities, mainly neurotoxicity. So, in fact, when we looked at Rich Goldberg's trial, N9741, and tried to find reasons for treatment discontinuation, uh, it was interesting that even in the era before Bevacizumab came around, 63% of patients on FALFOX stopped therapy for reasons other than progressive disease, meaning they did not continue therapy until progression. And this shows some things need to be taken care of because, you know, the idea is we want to preempt toxicity, especially in patients with a palliative situation. So then Emery de Garmont's group published or presented the so-called OPTIMOX-1 trial, which tried to address the problem of oxalplatin-based toxicity. It's a randomized phase three trial about 600 patients. One arm used FALFOX4, the old way of administering FALFOX, until progression or toxicity. And the other arm used an induction maintenance reintroduction strategy with six cycles of so-called FALFOX7 with a high dose of oxalplatin, 130 milligrams per meter squared, for just six cycles, meaning three months of therapy, followed by a planned six-month period with just infusion of 5-FU without plan and then planned reintroduction of plan. So kind of a stop-and-go concept for plan. Interestingly, first of all, reassuringly, the efficacy was not diminished by stopping oxyplatin after this induction phase. And so response rate, progression-free survival, overall survival, so-called duration of disease control were all identical, whether you continued oxyplatin or stopped. But overall, when you look at the toxicity, especially the neurotoxicity, there was some significant difference, not statistically significant, but clinically relevant, with the lower rate of patients experiencing grade 3 neurotoxicity and also, the, let's say, the cumulative toxicity. Over time was markedly reduced. Then the next step that Emery de Gramont's group went was seeing whether you know you can eliminate any of the maintenance phase of therapy, meaning you induce response with a short course of let's say three months of therapy, then have a complete chemotherapy-free interval. Following that, and again, they conducted a randomized trial, initially thought to be a randomized phase three design. Then when bevacizumab came around, a lot of the trials that we planned in the pre-bevacizumab era had to be amended and were morphed into phase two trials. So eventually, he looked looked at about 200 patients randomized in two arms. This Optimox one type of strategy with induction therapy for three months followed by maintenance, 5FU, followed by reintroduction of 5FU oxalplatin, Compared with induction therapy, same regimen, modified folfox 7 and then a complete chemotherapy-free interval... And then reintroduction of oxalplatin and 5 few when needed. So the comparison Optimox 2 presented at ASCO 2006 was maintenance therapy versus complete chemotherapy free interval. And as expected, I mean, the response rates in both arms were about the same because, you know, they have the same induction phase, three months of therapy in the range of about 60 plus percent for both arms. And then When patients underwent maintenance therapy, progression-free survival was longer and significantly longer than in those patients who did not have any therapy. The difference was actually quite pronounced in the range of difference of about two to three months in absolute numbers between patients who underwent maintenance therapy and patients who stopped. He had another parameter like this duration of disease control, which is a new endpoint which he created, which kind of captured... The first uh, kind of phases of therapy, induction, the chemotherapy for interval, and the reintroduction strategy until tumors progress beyond the initial baseline diameters, a little bit difficult to understand. There was no big difference between chemotherapy for intervals and no chemotherapy for intervals, maintenance therapy. But I think the very kind of striking difference in progression-free survival, in my eyes, led to the assumption that for now as of now, we cannot yet accept complete chemotherapy-free intervals as standard of care. doesn't mean we can't do it in some patient perhaps with good tumor biology, where we know this is a slow-growing tumor. But right now, as we speak, I would rather favor this Optimox 1 concept. There's another reason for that. The Optimox 2 trial was, as mentioned, conducted without bevacizumab around. So we have another component which was not really tested in Optimox 2, meaning a drug that by its very mode of action can actually more inhibit tumor progression than actually induce remission and could be an ideal component of a maintenance therapy approach. And in fact, if I look at what I'm doing in my clinical practice, kind of trying to integrate the data from OptiMox1, from OptiMox2, and the data that we've generated with Bevacizumab, and data that we might touch later upon the recent presented NO16966 trial. In my clinical practice, I start with a Folfox bevacizumab-based regimen, limit the duration of therapy with oxalplatin to the point before patients develop neurotoxicity, persistent neurotoxicity, which means after about three to four months of therapy, and then I continue therapy with a fluoropyrimidine 5-FU, or capecitabine, plus bevacizumab as maintenance therapy. And this works quite well because there is no real cumulative toxicity of 5-FU and bevacizumab.
0: What do we know about the efficacy of a fluoroperimidine plus bevacizumab that has been studied by Cabinavar, I guess, and others?
1: Yeah, it's a very good point because every piece of information that we have from the initial Herbert's trial, from Cabinavar's trial, and a pooled analysis of several trials that all use 5-if-u-lucovorin plus bevacizumab, the efficacy of this combination was actually quite substantial. So it's not that you think of five or few bevacizumab as uh, kind of a low, poorly active chemotherapy regimen. It's a very valid treatment option, particularly even for upfront for patients who cannot tolerate oxaliplatin or inotekin. This is actually in accordance with NCCN guidelines.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about what Dr. Degramont was presenting, the perspective he was presenting in this talk, and how you feel about it?
1: I mean, he presented in his talk more or less an update of the OptimOx2 data. He kind of led into the idea why we need stop and go for platin, which is quite natural. I mean, it just relates to the cumulative toxicity with oxaliplatin. Then he updated the data, which represented ASCA 2006, again highlighting the difference in progression-free survival between maintenance therapy with a longer progression-free survival and complete chemotherapy-free intervals. And overall, his whole tone of presentation kind of was a little bit more favoring maintenance therapy rather than complete chemotherapy-free intervals. One of his last slides, conclusion slides, pointed out that chemotherapy-free intervals could be considered perhaps for patients with tumors that show good tumor biology, whatever that means, Again, I think one of the ideas, one of the changes from ASCO 2006 was that he showed data on the efficacy of reintroduction of oxalplatin after maintenance therapy and after chemotherapy free interval. And there was no big difference in response rates when oxalplatin was reintroduced, which is quite interesting because you would think that if you have a complete chemotherapy free break that chemotherapy might work better afterwards, but there was no real difference in response rate and second progression-free survival after reintroduction of oxalplan.
0: I want to ask you about three papers that were presented. One was an oral presentation or two posters on the issue of oxaliplatin as part of a neoadjuvant approach to rectal cancer. Of course, the NSABP is studying that right now, but can you talk about these three papers that came out at ASCO GI? I guess it was abstract 233, 288, and 301.
1: After the German ARO trial that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, I think most of the world has accepted knee adjuvant radio chemotherapy as standard of care in rectal cancer. And now the question is, how can we prove upon what we had before? The standard of care, which was the experimental arm, actually, of the German trial, uh, was continuous infusion 5FU plus radiation. And it makes a lot of sense to kind of see whether we can integrate another active agent like oxalplantin into these neoadjuvant concept for two reasons. First of all, in the context of rectal cancer and neoadjuvant therapy, what we like to do is reduce the rate of local recurrences. That's one of the goals because local recurrences are associated with morbidity and even presumably mortality. So we'd like to get local recurrences below 10 or below 5% long-term. The second point is that eventually most patients, if the tumor relapses, will die of the metastasis. So integrating a systemically active therapy like oxaliplatin at a dose of 50 to 60 milligram per meter square weekly as early as possible could actually help to eliminate micrometastasis as early as possible. So we have a combined enhanced local and more systemic effect when we try to make our initial therapy more active. And interestingly, the doses, and I alluded to that earlier, which can be combined with continuous infusion, 5-FU, when we combine oxalplatin, do have systemic effect. We know from various other trials that as soon as we deliver about 50 milligrams per meter square oxalplatin per week, we do see systemic effect on metastasis. So that's reassuring. So now the question is, is it feasible? Is it tolerable? And we have a lot of phase two data right now that indicate that when we use 5 or even Cape as an oral 5 substitute, in conjunction with oxalplatin, we can administer uh, oxalplatin at a systemically active dose without compromising the treatment duration, moving patients to surgery, etc., and we don't see uh, treatment-limiting toxicities. So these three papers that were presented and that we'd like to talk about actually went along those lines of adding additional agents, active agents to five, a few or capside-based radiochemotherapy as new adjuvant treatment for rectal cancer. This is something that is being tested right now, as you mentioned, in the United States in the R04 trial, which, just to remind everyone, randomizes patients in a 2 by 2 design to capcitabine versus continuous infusion 5-FU plus minus oxaliplatin. So again, following the same approach, that makes a lot of sense. The Northern Italian group, a group, has been very instrumental in developing the oxaliplatin platin 5FU combinations in phase two trial, and actually phase one and phase two trials. So it's a group that has a lot of experience with this combination. And they embarked on a large trial which will eventually include more than 400 patients randomized to continuous infusion 5-FU or continuous infusion 5-FU plus oxalplatin at a dose of 60 milligrams per meter squared with conventional 225 per milligram per meter squared daily continuous infusion 5-FU. And so far, what they did, they presented in kind of an interim analysis of an ongoing trial focusing on feasibility, safety, and the question whether or not patients could move on to surgery as planned, which I think is very important to reassure our surgical colleagues on that. And focusing on the toxicity, when you add oxalplatin to 5-FU, there is an increase in toxicity, neurotoxicity as expected, and also diarrhea because the combination of 5-FU and oxalplatin plus radiation, of course, is more toxic in terms of diarrhea. So I think these two were the probably most outstanding side effects that was observed. On the other hand, surgery was not delayed. So apparently these side effects were manageable and patients did not have any delays going into surgery and no increase in mortality or mobility on surgery was seen. We don't know yet whether this really translates into a higher, let's say, respectability, syncope preservation, complete path responses, I think this is one of the results we'll have to work on later for later presentations. Now, the
0: other two papers, the posters, used capecitamine as a fluoropyrimidine in this combination. Any comments on what was found there?
1: The idea of using capesidamine as a substitute for infusion 5-FU is just mainly convenience. But not only convenience, there is some idea that capcidabine might actually be a better radiosensitizer than 5-A-F-U, although this is being debated right now. So there are two groups of oncologists kind of battling this out. But it makes a lot of sense having a twice-daily oral fluoroprymidin administered parallel to radiation. And I think now, after a long time, we do have a good understanding of how to dose capcidabine, which forms the basis for this ongoing NSMBP r 4 trial. In fact, a lot of our colleagues in clinical practice have already moved toward using capecitabine as their preferred way to deliver a radio sensitizer with rectal cancer, not only with rectal cancer, but also in, let's say, gastric cancer, esophageal cancer, and others. But if you really want to be evidence-based, you need to conduct a phase 3 trial. This trial is ongoing. I think the capecitabine oxaliplatin combination, which has been piloted in other clinical trials beyond what was presented in Orlando is quite tolerable and allows for the addition of additional drugs. And this is exactly what's happening right now at Duke University, where capecidinboxyplatin is being used as a backbone to add, for instance, bevacizumab to it which by itself has shown to be quite effective and surprisingly effective even to shrink rectal cancers based on Chris Willett's publication, Nature Medicine, where he looked at Patients just treated with bevacizumab without any radiation even, and these patients underwent sequential biopsies. There's a lot of translational studies that were conducted around that, and it could be shown that bevacizumab by itself even shrunk tumors and decreased microvessel density, et cetera, et cetera. And we all hope that the addition of bevacizumab to conventional chemotherapy plus radiation will actually allow us to improve efficacy even further. Now this combination
0: of Cape bevisism bevacizumab oxaliplatin radiation is also being studied
1: at MD Anderson, I believe. Yeah, and this is actually an interesting It's a combination which is quite widely used because it makes a lot of sense. Kipcidin is a substitute for 5-FU. Oxalplatin is an additional radiosensitizer and systemically active substance. And then, of course, everyone tries to integrate a novel targeted agents such as cetoximab, bevacizumab, perhaps even panitumumab in our treatment regimens. Perhaps as a side note, it is interesting to see that we really have to conduct these trials. We cannot assume that it works better, because just recently at ASTRO, the radiation college's uh, annual meeting, a clinical trial was presented using kipcidemox, and cetuximab as radiosensitizer. And interestingly, the PATH-CR rate was ha- only half the expected historic control. So we can't just expect that when we just add drugs which make sense to our mix, that we'll always have the right and the expected answer. So
0: I take it from that that in general, outside a protocol setting, you're not you know supporting the use of bevacizumab or even cetuximab or panitumumab and as part of a new adjuvant rectal program.
1: No, I think these drugs should be used and should be explored in clinical trials. That's why we have these trials for. I think we need a little bit better understand what's really going on because, you know, as with all of these novel agents that we're integrating our clinical practice right now, we do have potential side effects. I mean, no one really knows on large scale what bevacizumab therapy does in any adjuvant setting for potential GI perforation, et cetera. So this is something we really need to explore in controlled studies.
0: Let's talk a little bit about Abstract 400, dealing with the elusive question of can we predict responses to uh, anti-EGFR therapy, and specifically in this situation, cetuximab-based therapy, looking at FISH and other parameters of EGFR. Can you comment on that?
1: I mean, this is an interesting topic because we know that only a subset of patients responds to anti-EGF receptor therapy, whether we use cetuximab or panitumab, whether we use it in combination with chemotherapy or single agent, and. It would be very nice to identify these subgroup of patients up front. So far, initially when we developed these drugs, we thought that similar to trastuzumab in breast cancer, HER2 overexpression, and we just do some immunosochemistry staining, and then we'll be able to identify those patients that are overexpressing EGF receptor, and these are our candidates. Reality has taught us a different lesson, saying that even those patients where we don't find EGF receptor by immunohistochemistry on tumor cells patients have the same response rate of about 10% single-agent activity from cetuximab and panitumumab. So immunochemistry alone does not work. Finding predictive markers for the efficacy of anti-EGF receptor therapies would be a very interesting goal, sparing patients' treatment, sparing the society costs, etc. So since immunosochemistry is not the answer a lot of other kind of markers were tested. And in fact, one of the easiest and earliest markers identified was the skin reaction, the reaction intensity of skin reaction on EGF receptor target and therapy, which has held up surprisingly in terms of various tumors, various drugs, wherever we look with elotinib, gefitinib, lung cancer, head and neck cancer, pancreatic cancer and colon cancer, those patients who develop skin rash on EGF receptor targeting agents do better, even with a survival benefit if you allow a subgroup analysis. But that's a post hoc analysis, post hoc predictive factor when patients had already undergone therapy. So it'd be nice to have some molecular parameters. And that's where two approaches come into play right now. First of all, in analogy to what we see with HER2, the gene copy number of EGF receptor assessed by various methods, for instance, FISH or CISH, which identify how many gene copies of the EGF receptor gene are present in a cell. And uh, there are some papers, Lancet Oncology, about 2005, which did correlate the gene copy number of EGF receptor with a better response to cetuximab based chemotherapy in patients with colorectal cancer. So in the study presented by Persinenia at ASCO GI, they looked at about 60 patients that were recruited to the previous bond trial and a salvage therapy trial that all used cetuximab, and they tried to analyze their tumor samples for EGF receptor gene amplification. When they played with their data and looked at certain cutoff levels of gene copy numbers that correlated with response, they actually found that about 4.7 EGF receptor copies per nucleus was the best cutoff for them to identify patients that had either partial response or stable disease for more than 30 weeks, which of course is clinically relevant, versus patients that had progressive disease or a stable disease less than 30 weeks. So EGF receptor gene copy number might play some role as a predictive marker. But I think the more interesting component of their trial, their study, actually relates to the KRAS mutation status. And this is an analogy to what has previously been shown in a recent publication of a Dutch group in clinical cancer research already highlighted that the presence of KRAS mutations is a negative predictive factor for the efficacy of cetuximab. And in their analysis, he KRAS mutations was very well able to distinguish between responding and non responding patients. None of the 11 responding patients that were included in this trial did show a KRAS mutation, but 22 of 36 non responding patients had this KRAS mutation. That's a very nice cutoff, meaning if you do have a KRAS mutation, you're not likely to, or actually impossible to respond to Cetuximab, at least when you leave the data on this trial. So KRAS was actually a very nice predictive marker for response, since if you had a KRAS mutation, your likelihood to respond was significantly reduced. And this is interesting not only from a predictive factor perspective, but also potentially from a targeted approach perspective. We are still looking for a good KRAS inhibitor, which we put into our clinical trial system and develop in clinical practice. But this would be an ideal Hypothesis now to combine cetuximab with a KRAS inhibitor, PEPs, which we'll hopefully have at some point, to allow cetuximab to overcome this parent blockade and resistance mechanism intracellularly.
0: I'm curious about your thoughts about Heinz Lenz's paper number 401, looking at a pharmacogenomic analysis of patients who are in the Bond 2 study.
1: It's another interesting abstract, it comes from Heinz lenz group. Looking at predictive markers and pharmacogenomic analysis of the very well-cited BOND-2 trial. Just to remind us, BOND-2 trial was a trial where two antibodies, cetuximab and bevacizumab were combined as salvage therapy in patients who had failed all conventional chemotherapy, 90%. And one of the arms was a randomized trial, also included irinotecan, So we have a comparison between cetuximab, bevacizumab versus cetuximab, bevacizumab, irinotecan, And this abstract actually contains one interesting piece of information which had never been published before, which is the overall survival data. And we're talking about a salvage therapy group of patients, meaning last line setting. 90% of patients had failed 5 few oxalplatin and arenatekin. And the overall survival in the dual antibody arm without arenatekin was 10.3 months, which is quite substantial. That's what we normally expected for, let's say, in the era of five, a few almost, for first-line therapy. And for E3200, the second-line trial with bevacizumab, this is the goal of second-line therapy. So we're in a third-line setting, and the dual-antibody combination really worked quite profoundly with regard to overall survival. But more strikingly, even, the combination of cetuximab, bevacizumab, and renatekin in the select group of patients, and this is what we have to keep in mind, highly selected patients, high-end centers where this trial was conducted, median overall survival was 18 months and that's actually quite interesting, which goes along the lines of when we make use of all our agents in a strategic manner and even combine antibodies, reuse drugs that patient might have failed on before, we can actually make a difference and keep patients alive. So the problem with the analysis of germline polymorphisms as response predictors and efficacy predictors is that the trial eventually had a very small number of patients and only 65 of the 81 patients that were enrolled in the Bond 2 trial, provided blood samples, which then could be analyzed. There's some hint of efficacy or response correlation with polymorphisms in various genes that relate to DNA repair mechanism, EGF receptor pathway, etc. But I think we need larger trials to really prospectively validate these findings.
0: It's interesting. So actually, it was a sidelight of this poster that was really the interesting thing to you.
1: Yeah. I mean, 18 months. That's amazing. CBI. In a third line setting, my pff, I don't know why they didn't make more out of that. I mean, this I would have highlighted because we'd never heard that.
0: There were a couple of papers presented, abstract three hundred and three fifteen, relating to the issue of chemotherapy in older patients. Of course, Rich Goldberg presented some information on this at the ASCO two thousand and six meeting. Can you talk about these two new papers from ASCO GI?
1: So these two new papers that were presented ASCO GI relate to the question: How is chemotherapy being utilized in elderly patients when they were treated for metastatic colorectal cancer. And these two papers actually are somewhat contradictory because the analysis by Dong et al., which used the SEER database, looked at patients in the SEER database diagnosed from 1995 to 2002. That's important. It's kind of the pre-bevacizumab, pre-cetuximab, and kind of early irinotecan in oxaliplatin oxalplatin era. And all these patients were diagnosed with stage 4 colorectal cancer. So what was striking to me was that, according to their analysis, only about 43% of patients received chemotherapy, palliative chemotherapy, at all. And this relates to elderly patients over 65 years of age. And there was a clear trend toward lower frequency of use of chemotherapy in the older patients were, In the range of 65 to 69-year-old patients, uh, chemotherapy was used in more than 60% of patients, but only marginally more than 60% of patients. The decrease to, let's say, about 40% in the group of 75 to 79 and to the range of 20% when patients were older than 80 years. And I think this might highlight also the thinking at that time when these patients were treated, 95 to 2002. I mean, a lot of oncologists were not quite sure whether colorectal cancer was a chemo sensitive tumor at all. I mean, we have to imagine that in the mid 90s, we still had trials being reported randomizing patients to best supportive care. in advanced colorectal cancer. So I think it took some time for us to really let the idea of chemotherapy in colorectal cancer, and secondly, of course, chemotherapy for elderly patients sink in. And with the arrival of these novel agents, arena oxaliplatin, and targeted agents, we now clearly see colorectal cancer as a chemosensitive disease, meaning we can make a difference. And this, of course, encourages us to be a little bit more aggressive in treating patients, even elderly patients. And I think we've also seen a shift in perception of the elderly patient, which is sparked by various presentations, educational, etc., and actually by the patients themselves, patient advocates, that age does not protect you from chemotherapy, and rightfully so. So, Rich Goldberg's analysis on elderly patients on Fox clearly showed number one that these patients did have the same benefit from therapy as their younger counterparts, and did not have significantly higher toxicities apart from myelosuppression, which can be circumvented when you delete bolus five or few you from your therapy. So, yes, we are getting better on that, and we have a better awareness that elderly patients should be treated to experience the benefits of palliative therapy. And the second paper by Coler et al actually it's probably a little bit more what's happening this is a more optimistic presentation in terms of how chemotherapy is being used in elderly patients they looked at their own patient clientele in a community oncology setting in Texas they did a chart review trying to find treatment patterns of care between elderly and younger patients, and they found reassuringly whether or not patients were over or under sixty five years old, the actual attitude of the physicians toward therapy and the treatments that patients received did not change. So I think this is a very reassuring forward thinking approach. Interestingly also whether the numbers of lines of therapy, the numbers of cycles per line of therapy, the Toxicities encountered on therapy did not differ between younger or older patients with a cutoff of 65.
0: I wonder if you could comment on abstract 337. That was your paper on waterfall plots. I think that's something we're seeing more and more of presented at meetings and in publications. Can you talk about what you presented there?
1: Yeah. The idea of waterfall plots comes from kind of a better understanding what treatment actually does to a tumor. When we assess response in clinical trials nowadays, we're very focused on so-called resist criteria, which have a clear cut of what's considered a response on therapy. And we've seen in various analyses presented and published previously that response doesn't really matter as much when we define response as a clear cutoff of, let's say, 30% reduction of one-dimensional diameter as with resist criteria. This came from trial data from kidney cancer, actually, where drugs like sorafenib, for instance, have a profound impact on tumor biology, meaning delaying tumor progression without even really affecting or meeting the criteria of partial responses according to RESIST. This one pivotal trial in kidney cancer that used sorafenib, which actually led to the approval of sorafenib, showed that sorafenib by itself, a single agent, only induced 2% responses according to RESIST criteria but was able to double time to tumor progression, which is very significant and clinically relevant because in a palliative setting, what we like to see in an asymptomatic patient is delaying tumor progression and that is one of the goals of our treatment. Waterfall plots allow us to evaluate the response to therapy for each individual patient and displays it in a graphically attractive form, which really visibly tells you what's happening and how effective therapy is. So, waterfall plots actually measure at a certain time point for each patient individually the amount of tumor reduction or progression he has experienced on therapy. In our analysis, we use a cutoff of twelve weeks. So So we went back to data in 9741, the pivotal trial comparing FALFOX versus IFL and IROX, arena the Goldberg trial, and looked at every single patient for which we had response assessment in a time frame of about 12 weeks, and plotted the reduction of tumor burden or the increase of tumor burden graphically in a figure, and then calculated the so-called area under the curve, meaning the sum of reduction of tumor diameter based on each patient, and could find very interesting differences between the three treatment arms, IFL, Fox and IROX. One of the key components, one of the key results of this presentation was actually that the number of patients that experience benefit from therapy is actually much larger than the response rate by resist would suggest. Keeping in mind that the published response rate for fox in N9741 was 45%. But we saw that when we plotted the data, more than 70% of patients had some degree of tumor shrinkage at three months of therapy which is in line with what we see in clinical practice. We see a lot of patients benefiting in somewhat tumor shrinkage or a slight stabilization, although they might not meet the criteria of conventional resist response. So these waterfall plots will, I think, become more popular in the future, the more we talk about targeted agents, agents that might not be able to induce responses as much as they stabilize a tumor and might not lead to responses that meet resist criteria. These waterfall plots are currently being investigated in various clinical trials that use bevacizumab, for instance, the Roche trial NO16966, It surprisingly did not show a difference in response rate between treatment arms when bevacizumab was added, but we might be able to see differences when we use these waterfall plots. Now, in order to obtain this, do you have
0: to go back to each individual chart and try to calculate what the tumor burden number is, or is it generally built into the protocol prospectively?
1: Yeah, fortunately, the way we did it with N9741, we have a large database where all measurements have already been collected. So what we only need to do is really ask our database. For all, let's say, larger trials, FDA-monitor trials, et cetera, measurements and independently reviewed measurements become more and more important. So, yes, I think nowadays when we conduct clinical trials, we'll have the means to perform these waterfall plot analysis.
0: I wanted to ask you about abstract number 270. I guess a lot of people call the 66 trial, the one you've just referred to. And there was another presentation by Len Saltz that looked at another aspect of this trial. This poster, though, and Rich Goldberg actually talked about that on this program. This is sort of the companion paper that Jim Cassidy presented as a poster, specifically looking at the Zellox-Fulfox question. Can you kind of overview what the study was looking at and what this poster reported?
1: Yeah. So this study was initially designed as a phase three trial to compare Xelox, meaning and oxyplatin, with Falfox 4. That's the old form of Falfox, which is kind of our package insert, Falfox, to see that Xelox is not inferior to Falfox 4 in terms of progression free survival as primary endpoint. When bevacizumab became approved, the trial was amended and had a second phase, more or less continued randomization, but then included bevacizumab in a two-by-two design, placebo-controlled. Meaning we then had a cohort of Falfox versus Zelox patients, about 300 in each arm, and then a larger cohort. Randomize in this two by two design, Folfox versus Zelox plus minus map or placebo. And the presentation by Jim Cassidy at the ASCO GI meeting focused on the comparison between Zelox and FallFox, one of the primary goals of the trial. And you can slice it and dice it as much as you want and play with the data. There is no inferiority between ZELOX and Fox. Within the framework of the statistical hypothesis presented in the trial, ZELOX was not inferior to Fox in terms of response rate and progression-free survival. So the main goal of the trial was achieved. Yes, there is no major difference. Having said that, and this is a bias that a lot of my colleagues share, whenever we compare kipcidin oxyplatin with Fox, whatever flavor you might like, the progression-free survival curve of Zelox always traces a little bit underneath FALFOX. The very consistent finding in this trial is presented by Jim Cassidy, in the trial conducted by the German AIO, and in the Spanish trial. So very consistent findings across the board, multinational. Zelox is, according to the statistical hypothesis, not inferior, but I wouldn't consider it perfectly identical in terms of clinical outcome. Having said that, it's very unlikely, and this is reassuringly so, that the slight difference we see in progression-free survival will ever translate into any major difference in overall survival. Overall survival nowadays is mainly related to subsequent lines of therapy, overall strategy of the treatment approach. So I don't think that there is a major difference in overall outcome, overall survival between Zalox and Falfox-4.
0: What are you doing in your own practice outside of protocol setting in this regard?
1: Outside of protocols right now here, and this is a shift from my practice in Germany, you know that I was kind of trained and educated in Germany on that, and I used a lot of capcidin Platin in Germany. In fact, about more capcidin oxalplatin than 5 of oxalplatin by 10 to 1. And this has changed here in the United States because I had to realize that, and this is something that we still don't know exactly why that is, Cipcitabin is not as well tolerated in the United States as it is in Europe. Whether this relates to the folic acid supplementation enrichment we have in our food here, which might increase toxicities on cipcitabin, or there are some other reasons monitoring issues with cipcitabin oxaplatin, I don't know. Clinical experience is FALFOX is a better tolerated regimen than ZELOX in my hands. In particular, when you use FALFOX in a more optimized form, I consider FALFOX 4 obsolete. My preferred regimen, the palliative setting, is a modified FALFOX 7 regimen. That's the regimen of OptiMox 2, which emits bolus fuse, so you have very little neutropenia. So the difference between Xerox and Falfox in terms of myelosuppression disappears when you use a non-Bolus 5U-containing regimen. One of the arguments that is being made is that patients on Xerox do not necessarily need a -a portacath device, having said that a patient that will undergo therapy for two-plus years will eventually like to have a -a portacath device for various reasons. And I would say about a quarter of patients who will be treated with oxalplatin they do not tolerate oxaloplatin through a peripheral vein anyway. So the pros for zelox get less and less over time the more you think about it. Having said that, I use zelox I use zelox for patients who only like to come in every three weeks because every three-week regimen who like to skip oxalplatin once in a while and just travel around with their keep doses. So I think zelox has its place in our treatment, and we can reassuringly use it now based on the data of the Cassidy salts trial.
0: You mentioned the fact that Cape Cytobine is not as well tolerated at the same dose in the United States, but isn't it true that 5-FU is also not tolerated as well?
1: It's interesting that you mention that because the Folfox strategies that are followed in France look at a dose escalation of 5-FU in patients tolerated. So whenever you read Folfox being presented, it says 2,400 milligrams per meter squared over 46 hour up to 3,000. And this is something we don't routinely do in the United States, and all our protocols do not see this escalation of dose. So it's very difficult to compare that. I think the difference is clearly more pronounced with capcidabin with all the caveats that we don't use the same dose escalation of 5-FU in Firefox. I'm
0: curious what your thoughts are about Abstract 274, your colleague Dan Sargent and your group presented on patterns of failure after adjuvant therapy.
1: Dan Sargent has assembled a very interesting group, the Accent Group, which looks at a database analysis of various management trials conducted in the past, which were all so far five of few or kipsidabin based So we don't have any data on oxaloplatin treated patients in that. But he was able to get original patient data from about 21,000 patients, which, of course, is a lot of information that he has at hand to really look at patterns of failure, time points of failure, and what good endpoints would be along the lines of after surgery in terms of disease-free survival at one or two or three years as predictive for long-term overall survival. What he did in this abstract in present in Orlando, he looked at first of all the rate of recurrence over time, which I think gives us a lot of information about when are patients at risk for recurrence. He showed us this presentation and previously that in the first two years after surgery, the risk of recurrence is highest, and this relates to stage three and to stage two patients. With stage 3 patients, about 75% of all relapses will occur within the first two years after surgery and after treatment. His analysis at ASCO GI this time looked at what is the impact of therapy in terms of the hazard ratios over time in terms of disease-free survival and overall survival. And his analysis, and believe me, the statistical background for that is way over my head, shows that the actual effect what we see is a short-term treatment effect on disease-free survival, which eventually translates in a long-term overall survival effect. So the effect we obtain with our short-term treatment really manifests itself by delaying tumor recurrence within the first two years. And this, in fact, over in the long term, it translates into gain in overall survival. This is important because we might face the question of the future, how long should we conduct adjuvant therapy? Should we extend the duration of our treatment? Is this rationally enough that we should extend our duration of, for instance, bevacizumab maintenance therapy beyond a year or two years or three years I mean this is an analogy to what we see in breast cancer where aromatase and kind of estrogen inhibition is a many year long endeavor for patients so really try to analyzing what is the time frame of our effect that we achieve On tumor recurrence, I think it's very worthwhile. The problem with this analysis, of course, is that it only relates to an obsolete treatment regimen, which is just fiber-few and doesn't include oxalplatin. But I know he has plans to integrate the data of the Mosaic trial and the nsabp c 7 trial, which used oxalplatin-based regimens, into this analysis to eventually validate the model and see whether this more effective kind of initial treatment phase follows the same pattern in short-term gains in disease-free survival will translate in long-term gains in overall survival.